Lance, listen to me, all right? I need Bob's pain pills. Bob doesn't have any pain pills. Yes, he does. Not anymore. I sold them, but these are good. What? No, 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 no. Wait, uh, yellow are not painkillers. What are they? Just speed. No, they're the X. The uh, painkillers are in the Tylenol. Give him one of these. It'll knock him right out. Thanks. Welcome back to Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. We got another interview for you this week. Uh, this time, Aaron catches up with Sean Humston, formerly of Value Pack, if you remember them from the uh, late 90s on Tooth and Nail, early 2000s, maybe getting into it a little bit as well. Anyways, uh, over the course of this conversation, they're going to talk about a number of things about touring in Canada and getting arrested in Canada. Also, uh, talking about touring with bands the likes of MXPX and even their experiences and uh, relationship with Tooth and Nail Records. Uh, there's all sorts of great stuff in this episode. But before we get to it, I will just drop our social media stuff. Go follow us on Instagram at Growing Up Punk, on Twitter at Growing Punk Pod. You can also find Aaron, who you're about to hear do the interview on Instagram at Aaron Grew Up Punk, and myself at David Growing Up on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, but yeah, we're not going to waste any more time. We're going to hear in a moment the interview, Aaron, with Sean from Value Pack. But first, let's, uh, let's get caught up. It is Value Pack on Growing Up Punk. Yeah, so let's. You mentioned you'd played some some shows up here in Canada. So you mentioned uh, um, Medicine Hat in Alberta. What uh, what brought you up here? Was it like a specific tour, or was it just kind of one off shows? Yeah, back in the day, uh, we we worked with a, prom- a promoting company or promotional company that uh, you know would schedule events up there. So we'd we'd fly up and we'd spend like a week or two just kind of. Um, you know, playing playing different locations, mostly mostly churches, of course, and then, uh, uh, like I mentioned, the the medicine hat. Uh, I believe it was an all boys like college or or uh, maybe even a high school or something like that. But okay, that was that was actually probably one of the most. Um, I don't know. It was just like one of the most influential shows for me at the time because, I mean, the kids up there were just starving for music, and it was just it was just insane. Yeah, well, and we got very few, you know, tooth and nail bands up here, especially in these parts. So, um, actually, my my first ever punk show was a value pack show. Um, so it's, I mean, it's an honor to have you on and to get to talk about that. It was in uh, Manitoba. It was at a at a college. It was called Youth Encounter. Were you, would have you been in the band at that point? It was yeah. probably like yeah. maybe two thousand, maybe even ninety nine. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I mean. 
that show changed my life. Like, and I that was fairly soon after Jalapeno had come out, which was, you know, at that time I was, I don't know, maybe 13, 14, so kind of when I was just getting into punk. And, um, you know, we didn't have access to like a record store in the town I grew up in. And so when we'd go to the city, you know, we'd, we'd get a, a new album or whatever. And that year for Christmas, I had gotten Jalapeno, and that album just blew my mind. And then I think that was, I'm not, it might have even been the January, February following Christmas that you guys were at Youth Encounter. So not only did I get, you know, my favorite album, but I also got to, to see you guys live, and it was, it was amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Any, any memories from, from that show? I mean, that was, that was a long time ago. What was that like kind of driving, driving in Canada and kind of getting to the school that you had no idea about? And like in my mind, it was, you know, the biggest show ever, but I don't know how many people would have been there, maybe 500 or 1,000 or something. Yeah, we, uh, if I recall, it was, um, it was pretty big. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, it's, it's been 20 plus years. It's difficult for me to kind of, um, peel out, you know, each show in comparison to the, you know, hundreds possibly thousands that we did but right um but yeah i always enjoyed canada you know it was just uh it was just a an amazing place where uh, like i said kids kids were just starving for music back in those days and so they just you know i mean we walked we walked into these shows just like you know like we were like uh you know a theme gods <laughs> yeah yeah what was that like coming up to canada like you guys were from california correct yeah, yeah, we all grew up in uh, uh, Orange County, California. Um, so we actually started touring quite quite early on, back in '96, and uh, you know we did we did uh, close to 14 national tours um, between the the Value Pack years of the, you know the stint of those years, and and so the the Canada trips started kind of coming towards the latter part of the career. So so it, it was kind of no big deal, you know, just flying up there. Um, we just needed to bring our guitars. Everything else was supplied, and mm. we we try to bring our merchandise. Um, I do have a, a bit of a crazy story. It was uh, I've never been arrested before, but I got arrested in Canada. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What's the story with that? So we flew up there to do a show in Edmonton, and um, there was a family that had put us up, uh, you know, for about a four day stand. And we had a couple of different venues throughout the, the city there that we were playing at. And so we had all this merchandise that we had uh, um, flown up with us, you know, boxes and suitcases full of gear, CDs and T-shirts, hats, you name it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, back in those days, um, that was the majority of the income that, that you know, we made. I mean, we hardly right. made any money anywhere else other than just... Uh, merchandise sales and so so we get to the airport in in alberta and um and we get called into this uh uh, some sort of screening department and and this 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 group of guys tells us that we can't take any of this this merchandise into the country and that we would have needed to get some sort of permit Mm, in, in order in order to sell um you know all that product and of course, I you know I was the manager at the time. Of course, I've always been the manager, and, and uh, you know I was pretty livid because uh, you know here's 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 us knowing that we're going to probably be able to sell almost everything that we have uh, to these kids and and uh, you know get get the stuff that they want. Yeah. 
And uh, the authority said that we had to leave it there. And then when we came back to, to fly back home, we could pick it up at that time. So, so luckily, we, we had uh, suitcases that we had our own personal clothing in that also had, um, you know, T-shirts and things like that that, that we had stuffed. And, and they didn't search those. So we had an opportunity to at least bring those with us. But that kind of that kind of set the tone. I was pretty upset, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and so um, on our way back, I uh, was naturally, you know, not too happy with the airport and the policy. And granted, you know, you, when you look back, you go, well, you probably should have done it right and got the permits and right. you know, did all that stuff beforehand. But, uh, but when you're 20 years old, you know, you don't seem to think it's ever your fault. Right. So I... Uh, I'm walking through there and, you know, they had these couple of different uh, security screening uh, sections and, you know, we're, we're a bunch of hoodlums, you know, we got piercings, tattoos everywhere. And of course the, the airport staff probably didn't care for our, our image. And, uh, and we started getting a little bit of flack on the different departments we had to go through, whether it was, uh, you know, customs or whatever other ways to get back into the country. Yeah. We get up to the, uh, the the right before the security line, and there's this uh, this this guy saying, "Okay, each one of you guys have to pay an airport improvement fee." <laughs> Which and, sounds and like I, a scam. <clears throat> in yeah, and I thought to myself, "What the heck is that?" I mean, what are you guys serious? Like, yeah, they said in order for you to fly, you have to anybody outside of the this, you know the residency of Canada, you have to pay a, an airport improvement fee. I don't, I don't know at the time it was like seventeen dollars a head or something like that. And, and I just, I, I completely just lost it. I started yelling and, and, and screaming and, and said, you know, this is ridiculous. And probably used a couple of choice words I shouldn't have. And um, and so they simply were just very calm about it. And they said, well, if you don't pay it, you don't get on the plane. Wow. So, of course, of course, we had to pay it. So, um, so as we're getting to the next last stop of the actual, you know, screening, uh, what would what would have then been the TSA type of, of, uh, uh, department there where you know you go through and you get you get scanned with all your baggage and stuff. I uh, I jokingly looked over to our drummer uh, Ben Cater at the time and I said, "Hey, did you guys hide the guns and the bombs?" Oh wow! And uh, and they didn't like that. So they uh, they pressed this button underneath underneath the counter and and um, and handful of uh, mounty looking police officers came and grabbed me and um, read me my rights and took me to a holding cell inside the inside the airport there Crazy. and uh, and I was actually uh, yeah I was put put on uh, detainment and um, wasn't allowed to leave so it was kind of crazy so they ended up calling the host family back to pick me up and um, we all missed our flight they, they wouldn't let anybody fly out that was with me huh. Um, they searched. They searched all of our, all of our gear, all of our bags. They they took apart, they took apart the guitar cases. I mean, they were looking for any kind of paraphernalia that they thought was in there, which obviously wasn't. Yeah. And then uh, I had two choices. I was either uh, uh, allowed to fly out the next day, because we missed the flight. Obviously, I was I was able to fly out the next day. And be basically blacklisted from being able to ever come back to Canada. Yeah, no kidding. Oh. Or I could go to court at some uh, 
court district, you know, 30 minutes away from the airport and uh, plead my case and then pay a fine and then uh, and then be back allowed into the country. So that's what happened. The host family picked us up. We went back to their house. Um, the father of the of the host family drove me down to back. Actually, drove me back to the airport. I took a ride in a in a uh, cop car back down to the municipal courts. Uh, sat through that whole process. Got in front of a judge. He tells me, you know, you're going to have to pay a fine. And uh, I think at that time it was 700, 700 Canadian dollars. Wow. And uh, so I had to have money wired for my for my my family and back in California and uh, I paid it and then we got on a flight out of there and that was it. Yeah, and I had I had I had been back to Canada several times after that, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> Man, like how how ticked off were your bandmates about that and just the whole oh, family dude. and your family having to They were pissed. Man, they were pissed. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was it was kind of it was kind of um it was kind of unnecessary because the the gal that that heard me make the statement kind of looked at me with the smirk like like look I know you're joking right but but I don't like the way you look so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call you in you right know? so yeah. they they could have they could have easily just said hey you know what that that statement's not allowed here you know don't don't be don't be a fool don't do that again. Yeah. But even the even the judge told me that uh, you know they're trying to make example of uh, of uh, you know foreign people coming into the country and thinking they can do what they want, say what they want, right. blah, blah blah. So so it was uh, it was rather scary at those times. You know, I got fingerprinted and you know I had to take the whole side side picture profile and but uh, but I look back at it now, I was like it was pretty funny. Yeah, man, that's <laughs> that's crazy. Well, I mean back then. I mean that that was still like a decent punishment, but I can't imagine what would happen now if, you know, if you made comments like that and like guaranteed you'd oh, just yeah. be blacklisted and they would just send you back and say never come come back again. Well, yeah, because if you remember, this was obviously before nine eleven, so right. so that it wasn't as strict. But but it, it but did happen to be right around the time of the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh yeah. So so they were. You know, the, the citizens there were kind of aware that, that that had just reached whatever year it had reached. And, of course, you know, here's this punk kid making comments. So Yeah, wow. So was that the last last time you guys ever played in Canada? No, no, we've been there several times after. We had a couple shows in Toronto, uh, Ontario. Oh, okay. Um, either, either ones that we actually drove into and we were on the East Coast or we actually flew, in, flew right. into. And did that, did that come up when you crossed the border? Nope. Wow. Nope. Oh yeah, that's pretty good then. If uh, if they, you know, when you went to the judge and they actually cleared you of that, that's, that's crazy. Because it seems like I hear stories so much now of of bands getting denied coming up here because they have some kind of you know criminal record or arrest or, or whatever it is. So I think they've 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 cracked down on that a lot in the last you sure. know, decade or whatever. But makes sense. Yeah. Well, just speaking of the merch. Um, that was one of my first pieces of merch was a value pack shirt. So I think I was in maybe grade seven. And at that time, there was this company called Walking Time Bomb that sold these shirts that just had these like, you know, stupid sayings on it, like save a tree, wipe your ass with an owl or, you know, just these lame shirts that, that people in grade seven, eight thought were so funny. So anyways, I'm wearing my value pack shirt to school 
and kids just thought it was one of those shirts. They were like, value pack? I don't get it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's a band. Like Nobody would have known what band, band shirts were. I grew up in a, in a pretty small rural, rural town, so... Yeah. So I, yeah, I'll always remember that of people coming up to me and being like, value pack? I don't get it. That's fine. And, and I just felt so cool because I was like, yeah, you wouldn't get it. It's this awesome punk band you never heard of. So, <laughs> do, you, do you remember what the shirt looked like? Yeah, it was. It said value pack kind of just in like kind of block letters. And I think underneath it just said jalapeno, maybe in like a red font, maybe even had a picture of a jalapeno or something. So it was oh, a yeah. really like basic shirt, but... Yeah, I was I was in charge of a lot of the different designs when we when we, when we made those shirts. So I remember that one. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, what's I mean? Yeah, I I I'm still enthralled with band merch, and I I love seeing that. So what what was your process with that, or why did what what attracted you to to that? To to doing the merch part of it? Yeah, or yeah, I I, I, re- I really just kind of kind of fell into it because. Uh, you know, nobody else in the band really wanted to take responsibility. Um, and obviously that was, you know, a clear, a clearly a huge, uh, revenue source for us. So, um, we had a, uh, we had a guy that was kind of doing the design work and, and doing the screen printing out of his garage. And then he just, I believe he just got too big and was like, you know, I just, I'm just, I can't take you guys as account anymore. You know, I'm moving out of the garage and getting an actual office building and, and we were just p- pretty much considered small potatoes, I believe. So we had to find another screen printing company. And that's where I basically interjected and said, well, let's just do the design work on our own because that's obviously a big expense, yeah. you know? So um, I wouldn't say that I, I, I did it all. I mean, I would just more or less just kind of do a rough drawing of, of, you know, some different ideas. And then they would then take it to their computer and, you know, put it to a screen. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, so kind of taking it back a bit, how did how did you get into music, and what was going on in your life when when you discovered music, and what were some of the bands that first influenced you? Yeah, so when I was sixteen, I uh, my, my parents had had been divorced for uh, about four years, and um, my mom started dating this uh, this guy by the name of Dan, and and Dan was uh, you know real big kind of rock and roller guy, loved to play. Um, all the classic rock tunes from the from the 60s and 70s and um, he kind of inspired me to start listening to some some of the older groups out there like you know Blue Oyster Cult and uh, uh, you know that kind of era yeah. of, of music and I had a I had a tendency just to almost just get indulged into the, the classic rock era at that time and so I uh I believe it was either my birthday or Christmas. He uh, he says, "Hey, go up to your room, and uh, there's a surprise up there for you." And I walked up there, and there was this uh, probably a, a late '80s model uh, uh, electrical guitar. It was called a, a Hamer hmm. or Hammer, I guess however you pronounce it, H A M E R. But uh, you know, it's kind of a knockoff thing, more or less a, a, a like an Ibanez style, but. Yeah. but not a not a huge brand name and of course i just uh i just fell to my knees and thought this is the greatest gift i've ever gotten in my life you know That's awesome. so i uh i made it a passion to start learning how to play guitar and um i, I was all self-taught i did everything in my room i, I, I bought myself a little amp and 
and just went to town, started learning, uh, you know, learning, learning through tablature as far as the, you know, way to play Metallica songs and, uh, everything that was popular in the early nineties, you know, late eighties at that time. And I felt like I was getting pretty good. And then, uh, my, my best buddy from, from, you know, first grade lived two doors next to me. He bought a bass guitar and we started kind of just, uh, learning different songs and things like that. Uh, never played together up uh, until years later, but we, we, we just kind of had this connection like, okay, yeah, you play bass and I'll play guitar and one day we'll just, you know, we'll just kill it. And, um, so that went on for quite a few years. And let's see, 1996, I was, uh, let's see, I was, I was 20, I was 20, let's see, 18, graduated in 94. So I was 20 years old. So, um, so I had an opportunity to go to Cornerstone, Yeah, you know, awesome. down there, down there in Chicago area or, uh, central Illinois. And so a whole bunch of our friends took a flight out there, stayed in a hotel, went down to the show and spent, spent, uh, you know, three, four days down there. And that's when I actually met value pack for the first time. Oh, right on. So they were already on tour after they had released their first album. All alone in this world, dude, I want it. Not anymore, oh no. And they had their uh, original bass player, Isaiah, uh, playing for them as just a three piece. And that was when it was kind of like, oh, you know, you're you're from Orange County. I'm from Orange County. You know, you guys are obviously out there doing your thing, making records, touring the touring that, you know, getting it out there and stuff. And and we kind of hit it off. And so what, what I had eventually learned shortly after that is that that Isaiah was going to be leaving. And he was, uh, you know, his heart was in the ministry. And so he just felt like playing in a punk rock band was not his direction. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was, I think it was just the, just the turn of 1995 to 96. And, and they came back from that tour at a, right around February. It was my, it was around my birthday month. And, uh, they called me up and said, Hey, we want you to come meet us for coffee or whatever. And so I did. And they just said, Hey, you know, do you play bass guitar? And, uh, the truth at that time was I'd never picked that mach- that instrument up in my entire life. Yeah. And so when I looked at those guys, they go, "Oh yeah, I've played <laughs> that before." And um, he goes, "Well, yeah, good because you know we really like your we like your style, we like your you know we like your personality, and you know we got to had a chance to hang out with you in Cornerstone, and so we think we you'd be a good fit to to play bass guitar." And I was like, "Oh sure, no problem," you know. And then I walking out of that meeting, going, "Man." <laughs> I, I gotta learn how to play I, I gotta learn how to play bass so um so i did so you know i mean it's it's a fairly natural progression but of course yeah, yeah. it is very different very different yeah and um 
So that's what we did. So from about from about uh, February of '96 to se before September, um, I just practiced the crap out of my out of my guitar, and we we practiced uh, probably two three times a week at one of the local churches that uh, that Ben the drummer went to, and and uh, and then we took off on our first uh, eight eight week tour with MXPX in the, in the spring or the fall of 1996. Yeah. Wow. Man, that's yeah, that's crazy that you had to go all the way to Cornerstone to meet a band that was from your area. Like you just yeah. met them, just like kind of by hanging out, or what, how did that happen? Well, you know, I was uh, I grew up in a church that um, all of the uh, the members of the Supertones went to. Oh, right on. And so, so that was the reason why we had went to went to you know Chicago or Illinois because. I was, you know, we were really there just to support them as some groupies. Yeah. Um, but all, all those guys were in the same ministry that I was in. And so it was kind of a natural progression. Like, you know, here's the Supertones and then, oh, this is this new, this new band that just got released off of Tooth and Nail, you know, and then we're all kind of just back at the hotel that we all stayed at. And, uh, okay. And it was a more or less like. Oh, you're from Orange County too. Oh, cool. Yeah, you guys are from Irvine. Oh, why right don't? Yeah, it's like ten minutes from us. Okay, and then it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, man, that's such a cool story. So, were there were there like bands or shows you had gone to before Cornerstone? Like, was there a, a local scene that you were kind of attached with? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of fell in love with Christian music like way back in the day. You know, probably about your age. Um, you know, twelve, thirteen years old. There was. There was there wasn't much of it down there, you know. So you get you you get invited to these uh, you know Nazarene churches are going to host a you know a Friday night punk rock show or or even back then punk rock really wasn't even a thing. It was more just metal bands. Yeah. So um, so yeah, we we'd show up at these uh, various denominational churches and and they would have these these metal shows for you know just local artists there just just doing their thing and i i kind of took a liking to it you know i thought man this is just a really good avenue for for young kids to kind of uh, not get in trouble and um and and you know here's some here's some cool music yeah well what have some of those bands been that were playing there oh gosh i, I don't even remember man that means i like, mean these were just guys that were um just you know local i mean they were just terrible uh, you know okay. they were just they were just they were just young kids themselves yeah you know. So there was no bands that kind of took off from from there. No, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't really get into, I didn't get back into the whole metal band stuff until you know we started touring with bands off of the Tooth and Nail label, like like Stave Saker, right. But you know what I mean? It was it wasn't until later that I got kind of 
into more of the um, um, that realm of music. Yeah. So there wasn't like one band that you saw live and it was like, okay, this is what I want to do. No, there, it really wasn't because at the time I, you know, I, I didn't have a guitar. I was only, you know, about your age, 12, 13 years old. And so I, I thought, I thought, oh man, there's no way I can learn an, learn an instrument. Yeah. You know? So I, I felt like I was kind of late to the party when I started learning guitar at 16 because I, I, I just knew that, you know, some of these guys have been playing since they were like nine. Right. Wow. You know, or, or started off on the piano at like, you know, six or seven. So, so when I got into it, when I, when I got that first guitar from my, my now stepdad, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't really expect it to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until I got the offer, uh, to play with those guys that that was really kind of what kickstarted the career. Yeah. So you had never, you had never toured before starting the nope. joining. Wow. I never even, I never even played in a band before that. Yeah, and you were just kind of like, "Hey, I'm down for the adventure. Let's do this," and just yeah. went and did it. Yeah, and I was, uh, I was, you know, I was 20 years old, and and um, I had a longtime girlfriend from from high school that that had planned to, you know, obviously get married and have children with, and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, here I am, just on these long, you know, eight, six to eight to ten week tours, yeah. and uh, you know, it was it was it was very trying. That time in my life was probably the most difficult time I can remember, but also the most awesomest. Yeah. So, that, know, so that relationship word. lasted throughout that? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually ended up getting married when I was 21. Okay. Which, which obviously at this time, looking back, is extremely young. Uh, I had my first child at the same age. Wow. And I, I toured and played in Value Pack pretty, pretty religiously all the way through. Um, the year 2000 and well actually just the year at the end of the year 2000 um until uh until i quit yeah crazy yeah what was and, that uh, like? you know it, by that time I, my both my girls were born and they were you know they're still pretty little but yeah how was yeah, that kind was of, you know being on the road you know back then there was no you know facetime or i don't even know if there was webcams back then maybe how, nope. Yeah. So we didn't can, even have cell phones. Yeah, you just kind of call off a landline whenever you can and hope for the best, eh? Yeah, we used to have to stop off and 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 find a payphone and call the promoter, make sure everything was on schedule for the time frame, and you know we we had to have calling cards, and yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So what was that uh, that first tour like with MXPX? That would have been um, was that life in general, or was slowly going the way the Buffalo out was out by then? So let's see. The, what, so it was their. Like what, what album, album have they been that? touring off of? What, what yeah, year was a, that? So this was this this was the spring or the, excuse me the fall of 1996. Anyways, um, if I recall, the, the 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 CD cover was kind of green and white. All right, because that was with, teenage with, politics then. So maybe life in general wasn't out yet. Hit it to it to I know. It's so hard to let it go. Let yourself go. Ever 
That tour was phenomenal. That was kind of like the, uh, you know, it was my first experience being on the road and, and traveling with a you know, bunch of guys. And, uh, you know, MXPX was just a, you know, a, a, a way bigger group than, than, of course, we were. Yeah. And those guys were fairly experienced and been touring for several years. And so it was, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing, but it was also also very trying, you know, because this is the, this was the first time that that you know you send three or four guys because we had a roadie at the time, you know, going going out on a on an eight week stand away from home and um, not being able to uh, have much communication back home and then learning each other's personalities. Yeah, I mean, there were moments where, I mean, we wanted to kill each other. Yeah, that's, that's a whole another dynamic, you know, especially when you had no uh, no experience before. You're just kind of, you know, it, it's exciting when it starts, but then when you realize, like, hey, I'm with these guys, like, pretty much 24-7 in this small space, you, you quickly learn, like, okay, this isn't all uh, all it's always cracked up to be. Yeah, because you, you, there is no break, right? So it's not like you can just, uh, you know, take a couple days and just go off on your own somewhere. Right. I mean, you have to yeah. sleep with these guys. You have to eat with them. You have to play music with them. You've got to pray with them. You've got to do everything with them. Yeah. And, uh, and not that some of that's bad. It's just that, you know, eventually you, you, you break and you, you just need, you know, you need some, some solace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Do you, do you remember what you would have gotten paid per show back then? Uh, so, you know, in the early days, it was pretty minimal. Um, in fact, when, when we went on the MXPX tour, the, the, you know, the first big one, I mean, I, I think, I think we probably got paid, you know, maybe, maybe a hundred, 200 bucks, but, but see, again, all of that, all of our, our profits came from the merchandise sales. And since we were the considered to be the new, you know, up and coming punk rock band, I mean, our merchandise sales just were through the roof. Yeah. And we, we, we'd make, you know, we'd make, you know, thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a night. Wow. Just, just selling our, just selling our gear. Yeah. Well, that was, and that was support bands back then too. So yeah. That, that was super helpful. And, and, you know, that put gas in the van and, and kept us going and fed us. And, uh, you know, we, we struck, we, we, we uh, stuck to a pretty strict budget, you know, to make sure that we were having enough cash flow. And of course I was in charge of that as well. And so did that take you into um, recording Jalapeno or was there a number of tours kind of in between um, that first album and the and Jalapeno? Yeah, I think we did about four four tours from from that first tour with MXPX in, seven, in 96 to, to getting back into the studio. And then some of those tours were smaller, like, you know, that we'd go like on a, a two or three week, like West Coast stint where we'd leave from, you know, Orange County, California and just kind of head up like Oregon, Washington, you know, maybe cross over, hit a couple spots in Idaho and then come back down through, you know, Nevada. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I want to say we got back into the studio around ni- 97, late, late part of 97. Because I think that album actually got released in 98, if I'm not mistaken.
So what was your uh, relationship with Tooth and Nail at this point? So to be honest with you, Tooth and Nail and, and, and me never really got along. Oh, what's the um, story there, if you don't mind sharing? Even, even from the beginning days. Um, you know, we just we just had a uh, uh, just a kind of a, a bad experience. You know, they when they did release Jalapeno, you know, we wanted to tour, uh, you know, the heck out of it and uh, and get it exposed as fast as we could. And so we happened to have a show up in Seattle uh, on our way up the West Coast before we started heading east. And uh, we got up there and, of course, stopped in at the label because it was right there in town. Yeah. And we wanted to pick up a handful of uh, CDs so that we can sell them on, on the tour. And, uh, and they wouldn't let us. Hmm, weird. And I, I still can't recall as to the reasons why, but they basically said, no, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not selling the CDs. Cause I think, I think they were holding them off to, to, to maybe put them into stores and make, make the profit on their end. Okay. Rather than selling to us at a discount so that we can then in turn, you know, turn around and sell them for a couple bucks more and make a profit. Right. I, I, I'm not sure how that went down, but I, I butted heads with, uh, with, with with the owners, the owner of Tooth and Nails manager, I can't remember his name now. But basically, we ended up just uh, somehow finding the warehouses to where he, they store the CDs, and we just took them. Wow! So how did that? Of course, of course, of course, of course, we we paid for them. You know, we yeah. we paid the money for them, but but we we took them against their will, and I don't know how many boxes we took. I think there was about thirty CDs in a box. So I think we probably took about six of them. And, uh, and you know, we paid them back, but, uh, but they didn't like that. <laughs> so. Which is so crazy like that. You'd think they would want their bands to succeed on their own and get the music out, which promotes the label. Like that's, I've, I've never heard of that before. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it was a bit strange. And, and of course, you know, I was still kind of trying to learn the experience or the relationship between, you know, artist and label. But, uh, but yeah, that happened. And then, um, and then you know, ever since then, you know, um, I can't even remember the guys. Who was the who was the owner of Tooth and Nail? Brandon Ebal. Brandon, yes, of course. So so Brandon, you know, he's always he was always kind of a uh, I don't know a bit of a pompous individual, and so he he's always been required to be the executive producer of all the albums that get cut on his label. Yeah. And when we cut Jalapeno, we told him no. He will not be the executive producer. Which meant what? That he just wanted to kind of have the final say, and what? To, what was his role? Um, well, at, at, at that time, at that time, an executive producer really didn't do anything other than just being. Just at that time, it was more or less just the clout of being on there as the executive producer. Oh, okay, so it's not like he was down the studio, like hearing the songs or giving any right. input or anything. Right. No, I think he. Uh, I think he showed up to our, our studio sessions one time and our manager at the time, uh, Juan Casas didn't like him either. So they kind of told him to split mm. and, uh, and, and yeah. And so for the first time and out of all of his bands that he had, you know, signed and put uh, music out, he was not the executive producer on our record. Mm. And he was okay. Like to still put that out, obviously. And well, he didn't have a choice, you know, obviously he wanted to, he wanted to make his money on, on the record sales, but you know he was pretty butthurt about not ha not having that ability. 
Yeah. Did the band have a good relationship with him kind of up until that point? No, no, I don't think, uh, you know, Ryan, the, the, the singer, Ryan Shuey, he, uh, he didn't care for those guys either, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, uh, Ben Cater, he, he could go either way, the drummer, he, you know, he didn't really seem to have much, uh, much say in that part of it, but, but that wasn't until, you know, shortly after we cut that album, Ben, Ben had left the band anyways. Mm. So what, uh, so you guys are in the studio doing Jalapeno, so you were a part of the writing process for that? Yeah, there's a couple songs that, uh, that Ryan and I collaborated on, uh, most, most of, most of all the songs on the album though were, were his, you know, his masterpiece. Ryan was an, was an incredible songwriter. Yeah. And, and I was just, uh, I was just on the verge of being, you know, very marginal. Right. So what uh, kind of went into the songwriting for that album? Because there's, there's definitely a shift, you know, in the sound. It's not as fast. It's a bit, you know, more mature sounding, so to speak, and a bit more dynamic, um, you know, song structure wise, and even the, you know, the overall sound of the album. Yeah, that's that's exactly what Ryan and I were 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 leaning towards at that time in our lives. We just uh, we we felt like the 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 three the three chord punk progression uh, uh, style had just just been overdone, mm. and so we wanted to figure out ways to incorporate you know some of the uh, ironically some of the '60s and '70s sounds that you hear. Um, you know, between the Beatles and, and the Stones, and, mm-hmm. and kind of incorporate that into uh, that newer style of, of melodic punk rock. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely. I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even known of those bands when when that album came out. But I, I definitely remember thinking like, okay, this album sounds different. It's not as you know, maybe polished and kind of chunky sounding. And um, you know, for me at that age, it was probably more confusing. Like, why does this album not sound as good? But you know now, now that you say that, and now that you know I've had you know fifteen, twenty years to listen to it and kind of appreciate you know the sound that came with it, and it makes the album stand out as as something different. Like even when even now when I put it on, like I just I come to love love the sound of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a, a lot of influence with uh, with Ryan at the time, really, really getting into the, um, the 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 latter part of the Beatles career. You know, like the the, the late sixties, early seventies sounds. Um, and so you'll notice a lot of the songs actually have some of those, those chords, you know, some really heavy minor uh, chords that, that, yeah. that are common, commonly used in those types of songs. And then, you know, even the stones having more of that, uh, uh, just, you know, soft rock, um, style that we, we tried to incorporate. It was, it was actually pretty unique. I was, I was excited to be on that project. Yeah, and how? What did? Uh, what was the label's response to that? Were they expecting just another kind of fast three chord punk album, or was it? Yeah, they sure were. And so there was definitely some 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 you know kickback with regards to it being softer, and uh, and, and they weren't too excited about it. So we you know just said, well, this is what it is. You know, yeah. take it or leave it. I mean, it's still it's still upbeat, it's still catchy, and it's not like it's you know that far far gone from the original. But I mean, it, it seems like there's enough bands on Tooth and Nail that have done similar things. You know, even thinking like Craig's brother, they right, put out Homecoming and then Lost at Sea is almost you know a completely different album. And
I guess in their mind, you know, if they've signed this punk band, then I guess they, they have these expectations too. So I guess it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, you, you, you take, for example, MXPX, you know, they, they, pre- they stayed pretty true to, you know, their style through, you know, album after album. I mean, they were... Yeah. Uh, who was the producer on Jalapeno? So we actually uh, had an awesome opportunity to hire uh, Peter King, who was a professional surfer from San Diego. Oh, cool. He, uh, he, he kind of made himself pretty famous with not only surfing, but he was on the MTV racket as kind of like one of those uh, hosts guys Okay. For, for many years. And um, our manager, Juan, at the time, uh, had, had known Peter really well. And um, Peter, Peter actually played in a Christian rock band called Dakota Motor Company. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so... He was, you know, kind of out of the scene, but but still in the scene. And so we we wanted a fresh new set of ears rather than just bringing in the traditional, you know, tooth and nail sponsored um, producer. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of his influence, too, you know, helped us kind of create and structure some of those songs um, kind of in his fashion as well, which was pretty awesome. Mm. And was uh, Steve Kravak a part? Uh, do I remember seeing his name on the liner notes? Did Steve Kravak. Did he mix it maybe or something? Uh, that's possible. Maybe, uh, okay. Because he, like, he's that's the one possible. that had recorded, um, you know, MXPX's life in general, slowly going the way the Buffalo. He'd done slick shoes and supertones. And... So I actually originally thought he produced the album, um, but I recently went back to look at my CD to see and realized he wasn't the main producer because I, because again with the sound, I was like, this doesn't sound like a, a Steve Kravak album. So it kind of made me go back and look. But yeah, I want to I want to say Steve because that must have been when we submitted the, uh, the uh, the songs to the, the the yeah the mixing and the mastering studio, which was in Los Angeles, and I believe he was in charge of that part of it. Okay. Yeah, well, that's awesome. He's had his hand on uh, lots, lots of great albums. So, but, yeah, that's I. I was curious as to kind of if he had any input on on the sound of the album. But um, so after that, that album gets put out, and then you guys are just back on the road full time again. Yeah, we uh, we hit it pretty hard. Um, you know, doing all the all the festival shows, South by Southwest, Cornerstone. Um, I can't even remember half the names of the ones that used to be on the West Coast here. Um, that was a you know a big big part of our touring was in the summer yeah and uh yeah so we hit we hit the road pretty hard for you know 2017 2018 2019 and then it was uh i think it was 2008 90 mean or i'm sorry (laughs) 19 yeah sorry 1990 98 99 okay yeah and then we put out uh, incognito yeah. off of a four door records, which is a friend of ours. And, uh, I think that was in 99. Okay. What was, uh, what was the reaction to jalapeno overall? From fans? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and even like sales, any idea how much that album sold? I'm always intrigued uh, in the numbers part of it. 
you know, man, it's been so long. I, I honestly can't remember. I, I want to say, I want to say that that record, the last time I remember, the total was around sixty thousand copies. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. And did you guys see any uh, any royalties from that? Nope. Hmm. Yeah. That was the other issue. You know, we kind of constantly struggle with. Is that basically that the contract that Ryan and Ben and Isaiah signed at the beginning was uh, was pretty restrictive. So you know, of course, there was no uh, no benefits for us on anything. Yeah. So you're not not only are you not getting CDs as tour support, but you're not even making money off the CDs that you are selling. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a, that was a that was a tough blow to learn coming into the band. That you know that that pretty much all of that income that is going back to the label yeah and I, I think ryan you know kicked himself in the butt quite a bit not realizing that that that's what they had done they don't yeah they were you know they were young teenagers just get you know opportunity to sign into a relatively up-and-coming label and so they right. probably just didn't even think about what they were doing yeah did it seem like that album was getting you know promoted well at least like whether magazines or press interviews that kind of thing you know, I, I I would I would say no, but I know it was, but but at the time it probably wasn't to our standard. Yeah. You know, there was a big disconnect between between us and Brandon because, you know, we just we just didn't care for for what had happened and 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 how he kind of took advantage of us and then the whole issue with the CDs and then the fact that we didn't put him on as executive producer. You know, there was just a whole series of events that kind of just basically, you know, we're, we're both just putting up middle fingers to each other. Right. And so, so in turn, that probably, you know, didn't give us the exposure that we might have probably needed. Yeah. So you guys, how long did you tour off of uh, Jalapeno? So I want to say it was up until we, we cut the last album, which was Incognito. Right. So um, probably towards the end of 99, turning turning into the year 2000. Okay, so once the touring stopped for or Jalapeno, um, like just was your contract up with Tooth and Nail, or how did that come about? Yeah, so the uh, so it was a oh, let's see what it was. It was a two a two album. Let's see, it was a, it was a two album contract with with the option to do a third and a fourth. Okay, and so obviously when we got ready to cut Incognito. Um, you know, we were like, no, 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 we're not, we're not using tooth and nail. Yeah. So you just, you just kind of split, split ties with them and, and moved on. Yeah, I want to, I want to say it was a little difficult. If I can recall, there was, you know, kind of some, some issues with, uh, you know, the option to be able to do the third. I think they were kind of under the impression that we would, and you know, we kind of had to fight pretty hard to get released. But, but the tone was that, you know, at the same time, they probably didn't care to have us anyways. Right. You know, and they they were they were growing like leaps and bounds. I mean, you got like Squad Five O and some of those other other bands. And
I mean, you know, they had all those guys just just ready and willing to produce albums and make money. Yeah. So, so what was we, we were we were kind of like, eh, you know, let him go. Yeah. <laughs> and so how did you feel kind of going like did it feel like you were going backwards at all going to a smaller label just knowing maybe it wouldn't have the same distribution and promotion and Yeah, we had that feeling but at the same time we didn't care. We 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 felt like we were so liberated from from, you know, being under tooth and nail for those many years. And we were excited to really have, um, you know, Chuck Chuck Cummings, the, the owner of Four Door uh, Records at the time. You know, we were excited to work with him and, and really kind of put a new spin on on some of the songs. And you know, that's when we started hooking up with guys like Dennis Donnell from Social Distortion, and oh, yeah. really had a, had an opportunity to uh, you know to make some music that was that was just typical Orange County punk rock. Yeah. And how long did you guys go for on that album? Were you, were you still wanting to be on the road full time, or were things kind of starting to slow down by then? No, everything stopped. So once that album got cut, we never toured again. Oh wow! Yeah, we, uh, you know, Chuck, Chuck at the time was having problems with getting his label up and running. You know, he was working on trying to sign bands like Chevelle and, and right. you know, some some of those other uh, um, heavier rock bands that were coming out of the out of the marketplace and um and i think at that time you know ryan had had lost his mom to cancer and i think he oh, was wow. just uh he was just uh tired yeah you know, he was burnt he was burnt out yeah. and so we never toured it which the, which therefore it never really got off the ground um you know it got sold in some of the local stores here around the orange county area but i think that's about as far as it went mm. And then the band just kind of dissolved from there, or did you have you know final show, or was it just kind of that was it? So what happened was is we we uh, you know by that time I had I had two daughters, um, you know I I think we had done done enough successful uh, touring and making money that I was able to afford a house. Oh wow! And so here I am, you know, two kids, wife, dog, mortgage. And I just remember Ryan uh, coming to me one day saying, um, "Hey man, we're uh, we're calling it quits with Value Pack, but we're going to move up to Los Angeles and uh, and, and try to get uh, you know into the secular market and, and start a new band. You know, do you want to do you want in?" And I was like, "No flipping way." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, him and I were him and I weren't on the on the best of terms at that time because. He had, he had brought in a new uh, drummer, um, uh, the guy that you just mentioned, Jason Felt, Feldman. Oh, okay, yeah. <clears throat> you, you know, he had brought Jason in to be our our, uh, our fill-in drummer for the for the few shows that we were still doing. Yeah. Jason and I never really kind of hit it off. He was much younger than me, and you know, he had he had a lot more passion to 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 do whatever it would take to play music, and I was just kind of like. Now, you know, I've been there, done that. Yeah. So, um, so the two of them had a, had a plan to, you know, basically move up to LA with, with nothing, you know, than a few bucks in their pocket and, and try to make it. And that's when I said that I can't do that. You know, I just, I just can't do it. Yeah. And you like, did you feel content with that? You were happy just to, to be done life on the road and. No, no, I was actually pretty devastated. Mm. <laughs> 
I, I remember crying to my mom one day saying, you know, my musical career is over. And, uh, and you know, about right around 2001, I, I was able to just join another local band from Orange County that, that kind of just kept me going. Okay. Just, just, to, just to keep playing. Yeah. You know, um, but I, uh, but I also knew that those guys, you know, they're all, they're all really heavy into their careers. And so they're, this is just going to be for fun. Right. Yeah. And that worked for me. Yeah. So are those, are those still guys that you're playing with today? No, I don't play music anymore, man. Okay. I, I haven't, I haven't picked up my bass guitar in probably 13 years. Uh, you, you still have the same I, bass from, from when you were playing? Yeah. It's actually hung on my wall. Oh, that's awesome. I, I have I have a piano room and uh, and my bass just hangs on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, that's cool. At least you get to see it and be reminded of the memories and uh, it's rad. Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was an incredible part of my life and uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it back for the world. I, I learned an incredible amount of of patience and uh, and you know being able to uh, establish relationships and you know yeah. understanding people. Yeah. What would you say were uh, maybe some top standout moments from your time with the band? Um, well, there's always the classic uh, stupid stuff we did <laughs> tour. Yeah, uh, there were times where we were on tour with Value Pack, and we we thought it'd be a great idea to have the vans on the highway come up alongside of each other, and we would light fireworks at each other. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was always. Yeah. Uh, Always a classic stupid move. Yeah. Um, what about show wise? Any shows that where you kind of when you think of your time with Value Pack, you're like, this was the height of, of my time with the band. You know, it's it's kind of funny, but but there are you know several videos out there of shows that we played, whether whether they were festivals or um, or just some really good shows. But there was a show in Orange County that we it was the last show of the tour that we did with Value Pack. Uh, was in the city of Orange, or maybe Anaheim. I think it was Orange, um, and that was probably the most memorable show because I think somebody had converted a movie theater into just a huge venue, so they ripped all the seats out. Oh, cool! And uh, and that place was packed. I got to think there was probably you know four thousand kids there just squeezed wow, into this. Crazy. And they had built this stage that was it was you know it was really high up. And, um, and yeah, that was, uh, there's, there's actually black and white video out on YouTube of that show somewhere hmm. and it was pretty memorable. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'll have to try to check that out where you so did you, you got to play at Cornerstone and so you met the band at Cornerstone and then did you guys play there again the following year? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I think we probably made three appearances afterwards. Okay. How, how were yeah. those shows? Those those shows were always amazing. Yeah. You know, we we never got any of the huge tents that were exposure there, but we got some of the decent sized ones, and, and those those uh, you know those those tents were packed with kids. Yeah, yeah. I was there in uh, two thousand two, so I guess uh, I would have missed you guys by then. But yeah, I remember remember those shows being just amazing. Yeah, they were great. Awesome. Well, Sean, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and getting to talk about the band. And is there anything else that, that we didn't touch on that, that you wanted to share about it? No, man, you did a good job of claiming, claiming all the, all the gems. Sweet, awesome. man. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.
I say Romeo and Juliet, who comes to mind? Dana? Claire Danes. That's right, Claire Danes. 